One day Jesus was walking with his disciples following him and a whole crowd of other people following him as well. And he was coming to a town called Nain. And as they were coming to the gate of the town, there was a procession coming out of the town. And they were carrying a dead body. They were going to, uh, uh, someone had died and it was the only son of a widow. And so she was uh, following along in, in the procession to uh, take care of her son. And Jesus saw this. And he walked right up to the widow. And he said, don't cry. And then he walked over to where her son's body was being carried by the people. And he just touched her son. And the son came to life. Now, the key aspect of this story is not that he raised someone from the dead, as, as rare as that was. I think there were only three times during his earthly ministry that he did that. But the key aspect of the story is the widow. Jesus saw this procession, and he probably saw many, because death was common in, in the Middle East at that time, just like it is much today. And he saw the widow, and he felt something for her. And she was his attention. He walked up to her and said, don't cry, and he gave her this incredible gift of her son. We've been doing a series, or David's been doing a series, about the, the character traits of Jesus. And each week we've been looking at a different thing. Today we're going to be looking at the gentleness of Jesus. It's something that isn't talked about, the idea of gentleness. It's not found very often in, in the whole Bible. Uh, there's only two mentions of it in relationship with Jesus in the Gospels, and there's a few other passages in the New Testament which we'll take a look at, and, and a few in the Old Testament. But the, the Hebrew and the Greek words that are translated gentle or gentleness were words that did not have a very specific meaning. The Hebrew word, for instance, was anava. It could be translated gentleness, but it could also be translated humility or meekness or weakness or lowly. And it has a wide variety of connotations, although you can see there's a theme that connects them. And the translators would use the context of a passage to decide what it should be translated as. And so often they chose some of these other words. But there's one passage in particular that, that was intriguing to me. It's in 2 Samuel 22:35, And uh, that should be coming up on the screen here. 2 Samuel 22:35. Are we... Up there yet? No. Well, anyway, it says this. It's a psalm that David wrote. And uh, David was a warrior king. He was the head of the military. He was a conquering hero. In fact, God had given him so much success 
as the king of this little country called Israel, that Israel became the most powerful country in that whole section of the world during that time, because Israel just happened to be sitting on the major trade routes between Egypt and Babylon and, and the Hittite Empire, which was up in the area we call Turkey today, and down in Saudi Arabia, the kingdoms down in there. And so any time an army wanted to, to go on a conquering spree, they would have to pass right through Israel. That's why Israel was, was hit by conquering armies so often. But David had incredible success in conquering not just the area of Israel, but expanding the borders of Israel down to Egypt and up to, to the area of Babylon. And he wrote this psalm as a praise to God because he knew that God was the one responsible for his victories. And one of the verses in this psalm says, you give me your shield of victory, you stoop down to make me great. Now in that verse, what word do you think the word anava was used? Did you catch it? Let me read it again. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. What's that? Humility. See it? Humility. Humility. Okay. Well, in what words in this verse? Do you see anything in this verse that might have come from that word anava? The, which one? Yeah, you'll have to speak up because I won't hear you well, and then people on the other side of the room won't hear you well either. You said stoop. That's right. And this word struck me as a perfect word picture of gentleness. Because what it's referring to is like when you stoop down to talk to a child. I remember... Well, I don't remember well. Years and years ago, I heard somebody talking about his own particular habit of whenever a child comes up to him or if he wants to talk to a child or a child comes up wants a hug, he would always stoop down on one knee. I used to do this, but my aging knees will embarrass me when I try to get back up. So I now have to stoop down like this. But he would always get down on one knee so that his face was on the same level as that child. Because adults can be very intimidating. And this idea that God stoops down to our level to talk with us and to work with us is a tremendous picture of gentleness. Particularly when we realize it's like an adult with a child. And to God, we are his children. And so, we're going to t try to take a look at understanding this idea of gentleness. In the Old Testament, we want to begin with how the word is used of God to describe God. And so, we come to Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. Are we going to be able to get those verses up on the screen? Yep. Great, thanks. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to trust you because I don't want to keep turning around. That'll be really distracting. So Isaiah 40, 10, and 11. This is talking about God. 
And Isaiah writes, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And you saw the word gently there, but you also saw the word power. And it's really interesting how God's power is described with gentleness. You see the phrase, his arm. That's a phrase that refers to the Messiah, the Savior that God was going to send. Often we see that phrase, we'll see it several times this morning, the arm of God. This is something where God himself takes action. But God's power is always combined with his gentleness. And he wants us to understand him that way because he's got incredible power. He created the universe. He created us. He's done all kinds of powerful miracles, both in Bible times as well as today. But he's also very gentle in the process. And it's really important that we see the gentleness. Now, how important is this idea? Well, in the world, we see lots of people exercising power, trying to gain power over other people. But the models that we see in the world are often lacking in gentleness. Can anybody think of ways that people use power without gentleness? Anybody have any examples that they can think of? With micromanaging exactly you see that you see that in the corporate world you see that in churches in any kind of organization where the person on top wants to micromanage everything and it may be for good reasons but it's not terribly good for the people he's managing um, can you think of another example which dictators perfect example they have the power and how many people like serving, like living under a dictatorship? They don't. Dictators are not gentle. Uh, they're very, very cruel often. Even with benevolent dictators who really were trying to do things for their nation, there's still a lack of gentleness because anybody who gets in the way is taken out of the way. Another example? What's abusive fathers that's right i mean it's a whole area that includes things like domestic abuse um, both the husband and wives sometimes will engage in in abuse and physical uh, ways to control their spouse and then their children that's especially horrible as we look at it um, you can you've got physical abuse you've got verbal abuse you've got sexual abuse of children uh, it's a terrible, terrible thing, but it's an example of the kind of ways people exercise power. When they have a bit of anger or, or they feel insecure, they'll use power to cover it up. Think of any, let's one more. People who interrupt and talk really loud. People who interrupt and talk really a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, up in the Seattle area, and I went into a, 
uh, a Wendy's restaurant. Wendy's is usually really, really good, but this is just an absolute miserable meal, the worst Wendy's time I've ever had, because the manager was talking loud, and everything that needed to happen was talking, and was interrupting what I was trying to do, which was read a book. And, and it, was, it wasn't good for the, the employees either, but it wasn't that the things she was saying were bad, they were all good ideas, but she was shouting them at everybody and, and somehow exercising power. There's all kinds of things like this that we see in our world. Bullying is trying to, to have power over other people. Um, rape is, is a power issue. It's not a sexual issue. It's somebody exercising power over other people. Human trafficking. Um, aggressive salespeople um, are using their words and their sales techniques to get you to buy things that you don't want to buy. There's a lot of examples and models of, of exercising power that we have in the world. And we develop those same things. You see children, little children, um, using some of the verbal and physical ways to have power over other little children. Where did they learn it? They saw it in their homes or, or wherever or somewhere else. Or, um, and we see it all the time. And the bad thing is a lot of times people, including us, when we hear about God's power, we see it from the eyes of someone who is in this world of, of violence and, and power struggles and so on. And so we think that God is that way. I mean, you hear it a lot. People say the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. He gives us these laws and then he punishes us if we don't do them. And, and we see that even in, in the, the life of Jesus, that, oh, he was a, a meek person, but he exercised power and he taught that we should you know, we should submit and we should do all these things. And, and we end up getting the wrong ideas of what God is saying to us. See, God doesn't force us. He lets us make up our own, make our own decision to trust him. He's not putting together a kingdom of slaves, but of his children who love him. He's not putting together an army to go conquering nations and to make people become Christians. He's putting together a family of believers who take the love and kindness that he's given them out into the world so that other people can see it. It's interesting, there are stories, I don't have this documented, but I've heard this from several sources, that, that around the world, there is almost uh, an epidemic of Muslim believers becoming Christians because they've left their country, because their co various countries, because they've seen the violence that's taking place among the radical Islam elements. And then they come in contact with Christians in Europe or in, in Asia or in, in the uh, Americas and they see a totally different picture of kindness and gentleness and patience. And they're learning that our God, the God of the Bible, 
is a God that cares for people. And so they're becoming believers in, in Europe in particular, from what I've read, in massive numbers. God doesn't pressure us. He gives us incredible promises and then patiently waits for us to begin to understand them and have a desire to know him. We often see his laws that he gives, and he gives a lot of laws. There's a lot of commandments in scripture. We see these as oppressive, and people just don't want to become believers because sometimes the church has portrayed them this way. But God's laws are not what we necessarily think. The laws of nature are a great example. Um, Isaac Newton developed the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't make gravity do what it does. It simply describes the way gravity works so that we can understand it, we can make use of it, and we can make sure uh, we, we follow those principles. When I was in college a long, 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 long time ago, back in the 60s, uh, LSD was the popular drug. And uh, LSD played with the minds, and people liked it because it gave them all these colors and visions and stuff, and occasionally made them think that they were encountering God. But one of the things LSD did with a lot of its people is it would convince them that they could fly, that they could defy the law of gravity. I can remember a couple of times in colleges where where people on LSD jumped out of their dormitory window. We had these high-rise dorms then because they thought they could fly. They thought they were safe because the LSD was lying to them. Because they defied the law of gravity, they paid the consequences. The Wright brothers, when they were trying to learn how to fly, there were many people who had come before them to try to figure out how we can fly, how we can create a machine that will help us to fly. Many of them died, many of them were seriously injured, and they all failed. The Wright brothers, in their first attempts, they failed. But what they did, they went back to their home in Dayton, Ohio, built a wind tunnel, and then experimented to see how objects moved through the air. And they developed what we now call the laws of aerodynamics. They were true scientists. And because they began to understand the laws of aerodynamics, they could build a machine that was consistent with those laws, and they were able to be the first people who fly. The laws of God are much the same. God created life. He knows how it works, how it's meant to work. And he says, this is how you live. So you can fit in with life. These are the laws. You know, don't murder. You break that law, there will be consequences. Just like you tried to break, if you tried to break the law of gravity. He said, in every one of his laws, he's trying to help us to understand how life works. His laws are a gift. That's why Psalm 19, the longest chapter in the Bible, is a series of poems all about the law of God and praising God for his laws. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set me free. 
The laws of God are just like the laws of nature. When we understand them, they set us free and allow us to do, to live to our whole potential. And so it's important for us to understand that God does these things out of his love. When we believe the lie that good can come from breaking God's laws, we suffer. And of course, we do it all the time. I can get something good. I don't, if I obey that law, that's not going to be good. But if I do what I want to do, I'll get something good. And the fact is that when we break God's laws, we suffer. James 1, 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The only place good things come from is God and his laws tell us how to find those good things. And the laws reflect the love and the gentleness of God, just like in that Isaiah passage. He comes with power and he takes his sheep and just treats them so gently. And that's how he treats us. In fact, we, we see this. It, it must really hurt God when so many people are claiming he's just a God of wrath. He's only interested in punishing people for breaking the laws. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 33:11. This is a real powerful verse. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? He's pleading with his people because he doesn't force them. He doesn't use his power to force them to do what he says. He is, gent excuse me, he is gentle. Now, in the Old Testament, God made an incredible promise. We, we see a glimpse of this in Isaiah 59. 15 and 16. Isaiah writes, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. You know, throughout the world, we, he saw injustice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to inter intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He made a promise that, okay, there's nobody here who can stand up for mankind and help them escape this, this world of sin. So he promised that he would do it himself. His arm would do it. And of course, we've seen how his arm refers to one that he would send. Another passage in Isaiah, chapter 42, 1 through 4. This is where God is describing the character of his arm, of the Messiah, the Savior who would come. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Listen to this. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
in faithfulness, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Establishing justice is something you do with power. But he wouldn't do it by coming and shouting at people, by raising a ruckus in the streets and having protests. Because he was gentle. If you saw him, he gives us these word pictures of a bruised reed, a piece of grass, that he would, so gentle, he wouldn't even break it because he was sensitive to the fact that it was bruised. A, a smoldering wick, a wick that was about to go out, was struggling to keep burning. He was so gentle that he wouldn't even take his fingers and snuff it out, like we might do. These are word pictures illustrating that he would be a gentle person. And it tells us something about Jesus when he came. He didn't come and shout. He didn't raise his voice. But when he spoke, even when he was confronting people, I think we're supposed to understand his words as coming from a gentle spirit. Uh, lately, I've been trying to read the Gospels and reimagining how Jesus might have sounded when he was saying some of the things that he was saying, trying to hear his voice in a gentle manner. And it's really amazing. It's giving me a whole different perspective on a lot of the passages. But God's gentleness can be defined as a sensitivity to those who are fragile. A sensitivity to those who are fragile. You remember in, you know, in Jesus' life, he, uh, he confronted a lot of people, but the people he confronted were the ones who were harming other people. But those who were weak, who were humble, he was sensitive to them to the point where he ministered to them there is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. It may be one of the most amazing passages in ancient literature. It's Isaiah 53. It's not going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to just listen. And then I, give you, I want to give you an assignment. Sometime later today, or maybe tomorrow morning, sometime when you can get off by yourself, Read Isaiah 53. Read it slowly. Pay attention to the words. When you do that, it will move you. This was written approximately 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And yet, the image of Jesus will be in your head as you read this. Let me read it to you. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Ever been walking down the, the sidewalk and all of a sudden there's this one little shoot growing up through a crack in the sidewalk. That's the imagery we get here that we don't even know if it'll survive. And the picture is of, of a desert with the ground dry and cracked and one little plant is trying to survive. 
That's how, that's how this servant was when he grew up. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I remember back in the 70s, uh, one of the pictures of Jesus that was just really popular, you know, was the surfer Jesus with the blonde flowing hair, and the, the rugged jaw, and, you know, and, and people put this up in, the, in their houses and because it drew us to Jesus and it was an image that, that was pleasant for us to have. Um, but it's false because he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. His power didn't come from what he looked like. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Uh, the best image I can think of was, you know, when you're walking down the street and there's a homeless guy sleeping there and looking up and, you know, he's looking, is there some kind of handout that he can get? And we don't like looking him in the eye, do we? We usually, you know, look away and we don't like making eye contact. That's what this verse is talking about. Um, He was despised, like one from whom men hide their faces. He wasn't somebody people like to look at. Incidentally, one of the best things we can do is when we encounter a homeless person or somebody else in some kind of need is look them in the face. It shows respect and it shows gentleness and it shows that, that we care. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. A term crushed is very appropriate because you know what the medical reason was for Jesus' death? He suffocated. Because that's, that's how a crucifixion kills you. You're up, your arms are strapped like this and you're hanging from your arms and your rib cage pulls in and you can breathe out, but you can't breathe back in. That's why they nailed his feet to the cross or and anybody else who was to be crucified so that they could push themselves up and take a breath and that would make the torture last that much longer. But that, he was crushed. And it's in 700 years, long before the crucifixion was even invented. That's the description we get. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He's talking about our peace with God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He didn't deserve it. We deserved it because we turned away and should have suffered the consequences, but he took it on himself. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was silent. He was gentle. He didn't strike back. He didn't insult the people who were doing these things to him. And they were just being mean. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He didn't have descendants, despite what Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code said. He didn't have descendants. No sons, no daughters. He died young, but he did it for the transgression of us. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, meaning guilt offerings are always killed, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How will he see his offspring? He had no children. It's because he would see his disciples. He would see us, his brothers and sisters. He created offspring through his death. And the suffering of his, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He would live after he died. 700 years before the time of Christ. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Who are the great? Who are the strong? That's us. Because scripture tells us that we will share in his glory. We will share in his inheritance. God makes us great. God makes us strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. <clears throat> for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I want to look at one more Old Testament passage. This is in Zechariah 9.9. 9. And it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's a reference to the people who live in, in Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gently and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what event is that talking about? That sound familiar? Which? Palm Sunday, right. We call it the triumphant entry, or some people call it the triumphant entry. Palm Sunday, that Matthew quotes this verse describing what Jesus was doing, gently and riding on a donkey. Now, a lot of translations will translate the word as lowly rather than gently, but the New International uses gently. But lowly, even the word lowly gives the correct picture here. 
as the people were celebrating, the, he comes to the city and normally on the, you know, the days leading up to the Passover meal, uh, the people of Jerusalem, they have this ceremony. They take palm leaves and they go out to greet all the incoming pilgrims who are coming from all over the, the known world. And they would celebrate, they'd wave the leaves. But when Jesus came in, his disciples went before him shouting, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And the people, they'd heard of him and he's here and, and the celebration got even greater. But what was Jesus doing? Was he like a triumphant king riding in the motorcade? Here I am giving a great speech that inspires people. No, he came gently and in a lowly manner. He was riding the donkey. He had other things on his mind. He didn't stir up the crowds. Other people were doing that. He came to die for these people. Now that verse in Matthew that quotes that was one of only two places in the Gospels that refer to Jesus as gentle. The other one is a really, really important passage, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. It says, Jesus is talking here. He says, come to me, you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. His own words describe him as a gentle person. And he's talking to all of us who are fragile, and at one time or another, we all feel a sense of fragility. He's talking to you when you're stressed out, when you're having financial difficulties, when there's strain in your marriage or other relationships, when, when your work is, is hard and you're being mistreated by, by a mean boss, when you can't deal with physical or mental illness, when you're disconnected with the people around you, when you feel you just can't take it anymore. We feel fragile. Often when we're macho people, we don't let anybody know that, but it's still there. And Jesus is saying these words to us. Usually when we feel this way, we will often, these feelings make us turn away from Jesus. To push him away, to push away the body of Christ. Because, well, our experience with other people is often that they take advantage of that. They take advantage of our fragility, for, of our being fragile, of our struggles. And so we, we push away. But Jesus doesn't push us away. He welcomes us. In fact, we see that probably better, a better picture than anything is how he treated children. 
It was a time when parents were bringing their little children, that's, that's little children, to Jesus to be blessed by him. And the disciples, oh, he's busy. He's got crowds of people here that he has to deal with. And they tried to push the parents away, but Jesus said, no, let them come. Let them come. And he took the children on his laps and he touched them and he blessed them. Now, you know children. We have a lot of little children in our church. And how do children react with strangers? Some have no boundaries and they'll just run up to anybody. But a lot of kids, are, they're very suspicious of strangers. There was something about Jesus that drew them, that allowed them to sit on, on his lap. You've seen kids you know, screaming and yelling when their parents want to take a picture with a child on Santa Claus's lap. Um, I mean, Santa Claus is a pretty gentle uh, character and, and he's depicted that way. Um, and of course, we flood kids' minds with the idea, he will bring you gifts if you just go up and ask him. And so they, they, they find him approachable usually, but not all kids do. They're very scared. Jesus wasn't a scary person because he was gentle. His touch was gentle. He knew how to minister to kids. In fact, he said that if you do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never enter it. Because the kingdom of God is not something that we attain through great understanding or through mighty works. It's something we, we see and we respond because we know that it's, it's for us and it's gentle. We know that God cares for us so much. The gentleness of Jesus is a, gentle, is a sensitivity to those who are fragile. Now, as his body on earth, as the ones through whom Jesus wishes to pour out his gentleness on others, we need to trust him as well and set aside our feelings of anger, our fears, set aside all those things that that are not gentle in our lives and just trust him, knowing that if we become gentle, other people will try to take advantage of that. But also knowing that God's spirit dwells within us and will protect us and allow people to see the gentleness that we have. And usually people who are fragile, people who are hurting are going to respond to that. Paul struggled the Apostle Paul struggled with a church in the city of Corinth. This church had all kinds of problems, but the biggest problem that Paul had to deal with was the fact that they, were, they had factions in the church. Oh, we're followers of Peter. We're followers of Paul. We're followers of Apollos, who was one of the uh, well-known teachers in the early church. And Paul said, no, we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. But the groups that didn't follow Paul, they would reject him. They were arguing that he shouldn't even be telling us what to do. You know, he's, he's mean and he's, he doesn't tell us the right things that Peter tells us. And they, they were very angry at him and he had to deal with this. He dealt with this somewhat in 1 Corinthians. 
And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appear to you. That, I'm sorry, that's 2 Corinthians 10.1. I wanted to read this one first because Paul knew about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It was, it was a well-known fact of his character that he was gentle. And Paul says, I want to treat you with the gentleness of Christ. Can't we figure out a way to resolve all this? And then in 1 Corinthians 4, 20 and 21, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Here he connects up the power of God with gentleness. And it's clear from the context that he really wanted to to come to the Corinthians and resolve all these issues um, by being gentle, with gentle words and gentle deeds. First Thessalonians, there's, there's just a real interesting thing here in chapter two, verse six and seven. Uh, the church at Thessalonica is really interesting because Paul was only there somewhere between two and three weeks before he got run out of town leaving behind this, these, this group of brand new believers who were facing the persecution that ran Paul out of town. And he really cared for them, and it was some time before he was able to come back and visit them again. But he, he re wrote these two letters. They're two of the earliest uh, books in the, Old, in the New Testament. And he said, as apostles, we could have been a burden to you because the apostles, as they traveled around, they expected people to put them up in their homes, to feed them, to take care of their expenses. And they had a right to do this because they were serving God. But Paul never did that. He, he decided, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. And so he would go to the town, find a way to work, to earn his income, to support himself. And then his other, when his other uh, partners would join him, they would work so that Paul then would be freed up uh, to teach every day. But in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, he says this, as apostles, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. What makes that so interesting is just a few verses later in verses 11 and 12, he says this, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. How do fathers deal with their children? Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So whether his role model was the mother or the father. It was always how they treated their children, and that's how Paul treated not just the Thessalonians, but every church and every town where he visited. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This is a very familiar passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now often we're taught this passage 
Like people say, okay, this is what you need to put into your life. This is what kind of person you need to be. But it's not saying that. The words don't say that. The words say these things, these characteristics are the fruit of the Spirit. They're the result of having the Holy Spirit in your life. And if we trust God's Spirit, He will transform us into people who share all of these traits. We don't have to make ourselves gentle, because often we don't know how. We don't have to make ourselves patient or kind or loving or joyful or any of the things, because God's Spirit will do that for us. He transforms us. And so we just need to trust him and give him the opportunity to work and stop trying to resist any change that he wants to make in us. Now, often, as believers, living in a world of unbelievers and having the desire that these unbelievers become believers, we try to use the force of our words to get people to change I mean, we've seen it throughout the history of the church, of, of preachers trying to use the power of their voice to get people to change. But instead, we need to trust in God's power. Here's how we're supposed to respond in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. We use our words gently, not to force anybody to do anything, but to put the truth out there. And in fact, when we, when we speak to people that way, people are more likely to listen to us instead of arguing, just having calm, gentle conversations. And then people will actually listen to what we're saying and God can then take that and make a change in their hearts. Gentleness, having that as part of your character, affects how other people will see us. First Peter 3, 4, and 5, this passage is written to women who have domineering husbands. Paul had just finished talking about slaves in their day who had domineering masters, cruel masters, and how they were supposed to react. But he's saying to women, don't rebel against your husband. Don't get back at him. And these are hard words, I understand, to say to somebody who's struggling under a domineering husband. But he says this, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of jewelry and fine clothes. Now notice he didn't say there's anything wrong with those things. He said that's really not where your beauty will come from. Instead, it should be that of your inner self and the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great 
worth in God's sight. It's a valuable thing when you have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I want to say here that uh, this, is, this is my opinion, so if you want to disagree, you're free to do that. But I believe that whenever God is talking specifically to men or specifically to women, he's applying a principle that applies to both. He's applying a general principle here. So uh, this isn't just about women and leaving the men free because men come under domineering partners sometimes too. But a gentle and quiet spirit, it's, it's valuable in God's sight. It will be like riches in your hand that you can use. He used as an example Sarah, the wife of Abraham in the Old Testament, who even when she was 90 years old, at least two different kings saw her as a great beauty, not because of her physical appearance, but because of her gentle and quiet spirit. And they wanted to take her for wives, and her husband Abraham couldn't do anything about it or refused to do anything about it because he was afraid. But God protected her both times because he saw her as somebody that was valuable, of great worth. And First uh, Peter 3, 8 and 9, this is where he takes the same kind of principle and applies it to us all. Notice it starts with the word finally. That also applies to us this morning. This is the last verse I want to look at. So finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Be aware of, of what people are feeling and how people are hurting around you. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. That word humble is the same Greek word that would be used to translate gentle. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. There's a purpose for all of this. It's how, it's how God created life to be. And as those of us who have contact with God and, and have his spirit working in us, we're learning about how life really works. And part of that is living in this humble manner with, with sympathy for others, with, uh, with love for each other, compassionate, living with humility. It's not always easy to do, but God says that's how you'll have an effect. When you talk to people, speak blessings into their life. Say something encouraging. Say something good. Say something that they want to hear. Because this is how we ultimately will receive the blessing that God has for us. As the worship team comes up, let's pray. My Lord, 
you do so much for us. You stoop down to be on our level. Uh, and, you, and you show us your love in so many ways. And I know these things are hard. Sometimes we get so angry at other people, even at ourselves. Sometimes we, we lose control of our words and say things we regret that just makes things worse. I pray that you just help us as we understand these things to just let you mold us and change us. And I want to pray especially for those who may be here today who are struggling with things, who uh, are just, they're, they're fragile. They don't know what to do. They don't know where the resources are coming from. They don't know how they're going to uh, go back into a difficult situation. I pray that you will just comfort them knowing that you will do exactly that if we just turn our eyes to you. That you are a God who has power to deal with some of these, with all of these things. And yet you will treat us so gently with understanding, with sympathy. And we thank you for that. And I just pray for each of those people today that we can leave here and find uh, and be able to, to see the areas in which we're not gentle and we, we can just come to you and say, help me change this. And now as we go into our worship, let us... Let us be able to rise up and, and just sing to you, seeing everything you've done for us, that we just might have passion and, and, and hope and, and, and victory. I thank you so much for being here this morning, for stooping down with each of us this morning, coming to our level, not expecting us to somehow rise to yours. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.